Hello and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. First of all, thanks to Sora Shimazaki, who provides the photograph which adorns the cover of the podcast. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. This week, more on sanctions, some money laundering news, and some interesting possible future developments for fraud. Also, there'll be a little bit of a flagging for a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly, which will be published this Thursday. So we start this week with sanctions in the UK. There's actually been quite a bit of what I would describe as mopping up and consolidating activity when it comes to sanctions. First of all, the Department for International Trade has published guidance for firms on import and export restrictions in light of the range of sanctions imposed on the Russian Federation, including Putin and his allies, since the invasion of Ukraine in February this year. The guidance is broad in scope, covering all sanctions forms imposed, including trade sanctions, export and import controlling licenses, tariffs on Russian and Belarusian goods, uh, Belarus, of course, being uh, a regional ally of Putin, financial sanctions, transport sanctions and sanctions relating to Belarus, which has been sanctioned because of the closeness of the Belarusian leadership to the Putin regime. Starting with trade sanctions, these apply to all persons within UK territory and territorial waters and UK persons wherever they are globally. This is broad and covers all individuals and entities who are within or undertake activities within the United Kingdom's territory. It also includes subsidiary entities, irrespective of where the activities takes place. The definition of goods under the sanctions is likewise broad, ranging from military goods and technology, for obvious reasons, or any activity which supports military actions. It includes aviation and space goods, luxury goods, which we've covered before, iron and steel products, and internet services. Certain exceptions are identified in the guidance, and as have been discussed in previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly, and they can be carved out as a license as and when circumstances require it. However, highlighted in the guidance is the delivery of humanitarian assistance, which will frequently attract a license. Now, the United Kingdom is not alone in providing a license where humanita humanitarian assistance activity is provided, and the European Union has also done something similar very recently. And you'll recall in previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly that we've noted that the EU has also provided assistance in terms of uh, migrants from Ukraine settling in EU countries to receive exchange rate preferential treatment on the Ukrainian currency. Now, insofar as tariffs on Russian and Belarusian goods are concerned, 35% tariffs have been imposed on imports from both nations actually respecting obviously vodka but also other things too uh, but of course we've flagged this in previous weeks too financial sanctions have been a persistent theme of the financial crime weekly and this guidance highlights how such sanctions have been imposed not only on entities notably banks and other financial institutions but also on individuals Additionally, the transport sanctions are likewise broad, relating to the operations of Russian ships and restricting their entry to British ports, as well as re restrictions on airport, uh, aircrafts using UK airports, which 
I've kind of flagged in other editions of the Financial Crime Weekly, where I talked about the United Kingdom Authority seizing UK landing slots, which remember saying at the time is a, is a valuable commodity for an airline because there's not much in the maintenance of it so it's quite a quite a good asset it's usually the last thing to go when an airline is circling the drain now as if to ally this updated guidance this week the office of financial sanctions implementation or OFSI, uh, which is part of the treasury produced its updated guidance on enforcement and monetary penalties for breaches of financial sanctions which will operate from this coming Wednesday on the 15th of June 2022. The guidance provides individuals and entities with an explanation of OFSI's approach to the assessment of breaches when deciding whether to impose a monetary penalty. The approach is proactive as well as reactive, seeing that there is an appropriate compliance as well as a willingness to respond to breaches where they occur. The approach is summed up in a four-word compliance and enforcement model, promote enable respond change now there is a bit of explanation in the guidance which has been provided so compliance with sanctions is promoted by ofsi publicizing financial sanctions and by direct engagement with the private sector reaching the right audience by multiple channels with an easily understood message a garbled message is good for nobody it will enable compliance by making compliance easier by providing guidance and alerts to assist individuals and entities to meet their compliance obligations this offsee states will enable compliance uh, sorry cost effective compliance minimizing opportunities for non compliance Thirdly, OFSI will respond to non-compliance by intervening to disrupt attempted sanctions breaches by tackling them effectively with an approach that is consistent, proportionate and transparent. Finally, it will change behaviour by directly preventing future non-compliance through compliance and enforcement action. This form of guidance is to be welcomed given the extreme or acute pressures under which individuals and firms operate as they seek to ensure that they remain on the right side of sanctions compliance in the face of continuing sanctions imposition which, though they may have slowed to a trickle in terms of their volume, their, nevertheless their complexity and continued monitoring remains a compliance risk. Continuing with sanctions in the UK, the Treasury Select Committee of the United Kingdom Parliament has published the government's response to the report on Russian sanctions impact, which was published in March this year. The response contains the usual platitudes about standing with others, welcoming the action taken, etc., etc. But of more interest is the impact of the sanctions, which the government has said is limiting the Russian Federation's access to finance with the imposition of asset freezes on certain Russian banks. Additionally, some 3 million Russian companies are banned from raising finance in UK capital markets, as well as barring certain Russian banks from the SWIFT system, which facilitates payments and financial transactions between banks across the globe. That was quite a surprising uh, sanction when it was introduced. Additionally, the response indicates how some 60% of Russia's foreign exchange reserves have been frozen significantly, impacting the Russian invasion force from a financial perspective, so undermining the ability to invade if they haven't got the money to pay for things. 
The response also calculates the number of sanctioned individuals and entities at some 1,600, including many of what it describes as Putin's corrupt cronies. Don't feel comfortable with that language, but it's the language of the document. The response concludes that the sanctions are impacting the Russian economy, something which has been detailed elsewhere, and not least, if you'll remember, in the evidence before the committee, as was reported in an earlier edition of the Financial Crime Weekly Pod. We looked at the evidence that was provided to the committee, which indicated that as much as 18% may have been taken off Russian GDP. It was predicted to grow by 3%, but for the invasion. But in fact, it's now likely to fall by 15%. So overall, a loss of 18% possibly. Now, of course, the actual impact will be difficult to assess going forwards because, as well, as you know, and as was discussed in a previous edition of the podcast, the Russian Central Bank has announced that it will cease to publish the necessary data in order for an accurate calculation to be made. Nevertheless, I think we can be fairly confident that there has been a significant impact on the Russian economy, even if we do not know the full extent of that impact in terms of actual figures. And finally, on sanctions in the UK this week, the Financial Conduct Authority, in the April 2022 minutes of its board meetings, which were published this week, has indicated that firms uh, had been operationalizing sanctions well, presumably that means implementing them well and complying with them well, and that potential impacts on markets and the costs of living have been monitored and risk assessed appropriately. Now, this may now have changed, especially in view of the news this week relating to the continued blockade of ports and the Ukrainian grain issue. We'll have to wait and see for uh, May's minutes to see if there's any change there. Finally, the report also reflects on cyber attack risk. Now, the cyber threat, which has been posed by Russian-backed hackers, these are state-backed hackers, is something which has been trailed in the financial and the broader press since the invasion. But the FCA notes that no cyber attacks have been reported on UK banks or on other financial institutions, as it happens. Now, two things can be made here. This is either a feather in the cap for their respective cyber resilience, so well done to them if that is the case, or it might be the fact that the hackers either haven't got around to it yet or that the threat is more imagined than real. That's it for sanctions in the UK. Outside the UK, beyond the UK, of course, the European Union confirmed the sixth package of sanctions against Russia, which is something we looked at in last week's Financial Crime Weekly, but with the additional news that the EU continues to tell us to watch this space for more sanctions to follow. I think it feels as though it's got the wind in its sails a bit after the, all the stress over energy sanctions that they were being created, or the, the threat that energy sanctions were creating for the European Union. Now, not the EU, but from Switzerland, which, of course, as you will know, has close ties to the EU being a member of the single market and which has confirmed that it has joined the sixth round of EU sanctions against Russia and Belarus. On the 10th of June, the Federal Council, which is the seven-member executive council that constitutes the executive branch of the federal government of the Swiss Confederation, announced that it was adopting the sanctions in full, including against sanctioned individuals. The list of individuals sanctioned by the Swiss authorities mirrors that list of EU-sanctioned individuals. 
Now, staying in Switzerland, this is quite an interesting development. On the 9th of June, the Swiss lower house of the Federal Assembly backed legal changes, allowing it to impose sanctions independently of other nations or international organizations against those individuals or entities who are deemed to have violated international humanitarian law. This is a significant move, as I said, for the Swiss who, being traditionally neutral, have tended to shy away from the imposition of individual sanctions outside those which are needed to comply with its international and pan-national obligations. At the moment, Switzerland can only adopt sanctions imposed by the United Nations, by the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and those which are imposed by its major trading partners, such as already mentioned the European Union. So this is quite a radical departure for the Swiss authorities. Over in the US, the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC, has taken further action to undermine Russia's elites by targeting the use of luxury assets as a means by which funds can be hidden or moved around. The sanctions which operate against Kremlin-aligned corporations, such as a yacht brokerage firm called Imperial Yachts, SARL, which I think is based in Monaco, and prominent government officials, as well as someone called Sergei Roldogin. Now, he's a Putin ally, and he's believed to be Putin's offshore wealth manager. The sanctions also identify two yachts in particular, one which is Russian-flagged, it's called Graceful, and the other which is Cayman-flagged, that's called Olympia, on which Putin is believed to have taken numerous trips, and some, it is alleged, with the Belarusian president. Now, as well as these specific targets, the US Treasury has also announced that it plans to take enforcement action against entities, institutions, or individuals which have failed to comply with Russian sanctions. Now, here we go, not to be outdone. Uh, what can only be described as a childish game of tit-for-tat, the Russian Federation has announced sanctions against 61 US officials, including the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, and the Energy Secretary, uh, Jennifer Granholm. Uh, this is not the first time that Russia has announced sanctions against prominent US political figures, having previously announced sanctions against 398 members of the US Congress back in April this year. While I can't imagine any of the individuals sanctioned by the Russian Federation will be unduly concerned about these sanctions, it does indicate a little of something about the mentality of who we're dealing with here and what threat might possibly be posed in other contexts as we move forwards. Right, let's move away from sanctions for this week and take a look at some bits and pieces on money laundering which have come out this week. First, the Financial Action Task Force has published its anti-money laundering and countering of the financing of terrorism digital strategy for law enforcement authorities. The strategy, uh, the strategy document has been produced against the backdrop of the technological transformation of financial services with the associated transformation in the operational capabilities of criminals, terrorists and sanctioned individuals. The strategy document is concerned to focus on the key strategic questions which should be considered prior to launching digital initiatives aimed at AML and countering of financial terrorism. The questions should be invaluable in guiding agencies in the use of digital strategies, identifying key questions for consideration prior to any implementation. 
Further this week, the Solicitors Regulatory Authority in England and Wales has announced that the 6,000 law firms in England and Wales which fall under anti-money laundering laws must provide new data to the SRA on the scale and potential risk of the work in which their respective firms are involved. The SRA, which is the anti-money laundering supervisor under the Money Laundering Regulations 2017, has an obligation to assess the anti-money laundering risk under which the firms it regulates operate. The new data the firms are required to provide covers information relating to the value of work conducted for their largest single client, physical cash thresholds, how much higher risk work they conduct, and the number of internal concerns raised about potential money laundering risk, as well as the number of suspicious activity reports which have been submitted. The information will be used by the SRA to help analyse potential AML risk posed by the firms it regulates. And finally this week, a little bit on fraud. A few interesting bits and pieces have come out this week, actually. So let's start, first of all, with something that the Ministry of Justice has done. It's just published its post-legislative assessment of the Fraud Act 2006. Now, this is the second one that it's done. It did, did another one in 2012, which concluded that the Act was working well. The most recent review, the one that was published last week... Uh, specifically considered whether it remained, that is the Fraud Act 2006, whether it remained an effective tool for tackling fraud, especially given the development of, technolo of technology over the last decade. The assessment concluded that the Fraud Act remains an effective legislative enactment in combating fraud. The fact that the offences are broadly drawn means that they are able to cover most forms of offending and any technological developments which will continue to test the efficacy of the statute. Now, of interest are a couple of areas where improvements might come. The first comes from the Ministry of Justice's summary of the Act, where it concluded that some benefits might come from aligning, first of all, the maximum sentences for fraud and money laundering, because there is some difference between the two at the moment, as well as doing more to tackle fraud by corporations. Now, this is interesting. This is echoed, first of all, this is echoed, secondly, in the National Economic Crime Centre's response to the assessment. So it provided uh, a response to the assessment as well, stating that it would welcome the adoption of a failure to prevent economic crime offence, which covered fraud and related offences, for example, false accounting. Now, again... This is interesting when I also tell you that on Friday of last week, on the 10th of June, the Law Commission published its long-awaited report on corporate criminal liability, which sets out options relating to the use of failure to prevent offences against corporations in the criminal law. One of the options for reform, the Law Commission set out a number of options for reform, but one of the options for reform of the law is the creation of a failure by a corporation to prevent fraud by an associated person. Now, Notably, the Law Commission also rejected a general failure to prevent crime, which I suppose would also include the general failure to prevent economic crime offence, which has been mooted before, in fact, Lisa uh, Asofsky, who is director of the Serious Fraud Office, has gone public in stating 
that an offence of failure to prevent economic crime tops her wish list of offences. I mean, it's an odd wish, but at least it's a bit more original than I'll have another three wishes, please. Now, in response to the publication of the Law Commission report, the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax criticised the proposals as being, and I quote, unambitious, uninspired and insipid. But they don't really offer anything specific by way of criticism. Interestingly, you'll recall, of course, that the report or the manifesto, I think they called it, of the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax was the subject of a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, where it published its own manifesto for reform of the law relating to economic crime. So actually, I think it's time for a wee comparison of the two. They deserve a deep dive. So, this week, Thursday, I'm going to produce another special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly where I will compare the Law Commission's recommendations made in its report, which was published on Friday of last week, together with a look back at the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax, its manifesto, and compare the two side by side and hopefully get a deeper dive into what Margaret Hodge described as unambitious, uninspired and insipid. Otherwise, that's it for this week. Do subscribe if you feel inclined to do so wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll be back, God willing, next week on Thursday with the special edition and on Sunday with the usual weekly. Have a great week.